0: Welcome to the Whole View. I'm Stacy Toth of RealEverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out.
1: And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantine of the com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health.
0: Welcome back to the Whole View episode. 419 if we have done our basic math correctly. And this week we're talking about corn, which I am, I am really, I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we're
1: talking about
0: it. I i, I want to know, and I know you're going to answer the question, why corn often is not digested and comes out in a way you can recognize. <laughs> we all want to know and Sarah I'm sure you're gonna answer it for Mm -hmm. us Uh. there's a there's a few things going on there okay well listeners you know when I start the episode with a poop question it only (laughs) gets interesting from there oh it's gonna be a good episode excellent
1: um yeah no I I so where this topic originates just to we've got a um a listener question but um I kind of wanted to just give a little a little recent history preface for our listeners um especially you know I I recognize that um the people who tune into our content will often prefer like one source or the other. Right. So we have our podcast listeners and they, there's an overlap, but like not everybody who listens to the podcast also follows us on social media or they might follow one channel, but not another channel. And they may be on our newsletters, but might not. And I do tend to, um, I do tend to create different content across all of those different ways of communicating with people for the people who are, are on everything so that it's interesting, right? So like what you get out of the newsletter is a little bit different from what you see on social media, a little bit different than reading a blog post, a little bit different than the podcast. And often what I'll do is I will tackle one topic or one question from like different angles in those those different ways of communicating. Um, It also keeps me interested. So I'm not like repeating the same five things over and over and over again. And so I had been talking about my new um, gut microbiome ebook. It's called the Gut Health Guidebook. And actually, the Gut Health Cookbook is coming in just a couple of weeks. It's sort of like the companion. It's actually an extension of the science while also being like the practical focus companion ebook. And one of the things that I did with these ebooks was, um, and actually for the last six years that I've been researching the gut microbiome, is really trying to take a step back from paleo or AIP or um, really like any of that framework and really just looking at the science as objectively as I possibly can to just really understand what the science says on the impact of different foods on the gut microbiome. So I had mentioned some of the surprise foods, foods that turn out to be really great for the gut microbiome on uh, in, an, in a newsletter a few weeks ago, and one of those is corn, and then uh, my inbox blew up. It was pretty much the the, the natural next thing. So, um, so we're going to talk about that science, and I'm going to talk about why it was so important to me to approach the research for this ebook from a as neutral uh, a standpoint as possible. But before we get into that, Stacy, we have a comment from our episode last week that I have to read for my mom, because I know my mom is listening, and I know she needs to hear this comment.
0: I'm excited for you to read it to her, because I can already see her face glowing and smiling. (laughs) So this is a comment
1: from Linda, and Linda wrote, in all caps, I loved your latest podcast with your mother. My husband is a retired educator who worked in both BC and at the Alberta Distance Learning Center in Distance Learning. So everything your mother talked about are words that I have heard over and over. We live on the East Coast in the province of New Brunswick now where he is a retired distance educator at UNB. Even though I don't have children at home, I listened to every word of this podcast. I loved what your mother said about journalists. As a retired journalist, I can relate about the deadlines. I am 70 and have seven grandkitties, and I'm sending this podcast link to my own kids." "'Around six years ago, I began on a very strict paleo program. "'There was a time I listened to probably a dozen or more paleo podcasts. "'Yours and Stacey's is the only one I am currently listening to. "'I have evolved into a natural way of eating "'and away from some of the strict dictates of the old paleo diet. "'I do eat gluten now. "'I trust your scientific approach.' you have gotten me to eat mushrooms. As well, I watch every single one of Stacy's lovely Instagram posts about her life. Peace to you both during this most difficult time,
0: Linda. I am holding up a heart with my hands for Linda. I love, oh, I'm doing it too. I love her Double so much. And I know, listeners, I love, I love all of you the same. I can't just only pick on Linda. But <laughs> <laughs> I will say what is fascinating to me is that um, there was a time when I listened to a dozen or more paleo podcasts, mm-hmm. and yep. sure. we're not a paleo podcast anymore. So I know we talked about this when we, you know, changed the name and all of that, but we have done a lot of work, as you'll hear later today, on why we have both broadened our approach as well as, you know, kind of moved into a different understanding of what a health focus is. And we both, you know, discovered a lot about ourselves with paleo, with AIP. But from there, as you, you know, are on your health journey, we hope that you continue to learn and evolve. And that's what we and our podcast has become. So I love that she says she's Ours is the only one she's currently still listening to, but I'm like, but we're not even a paleo podcast anymore, (laughs) so maybe that's why. Um, We do try to encompass, um, like she says, the evolution of a natural way of eating and, you know, listening to your body and focusing on the foods that make you thrive and nutrient density, NutriVore, all that kind of stuff. Um, I love that. She's eating mushrooms now. I go through phases where I like have Sarah's voice in my head and I'm like, you can add <laughs> mushrooms to that. <laughs> and I'll eat like a whole bunch for a while and then I'll get over them. Um, so if you haven't listened to our mushroom podcast, go back and listen because it's, as Sarah says, its own food group. Um.
1: Yes. I. So one of the things that I, well, first of all, I had to read Linda's comment because I, I know my mom listens every single week and... um you know f- when we have guests come on who aren't used to public speaking or you know having an online audience or podcasting or being interviewed um i i recognize that this is a really like unique forum and um and it's hard to like it's hard to know because there's no immediate feedback right it's not like you're in front of an audience and they're going to ask questions it's hard to know, like, did I do a good job? So mom, you did a great job last week. And Linda is the listener comment to prove it. Cause I know she doesn't believe it when I just tell her. So, um, so the other thing about Linda's question, that I think is such a great introduction into this week's episode is, um, is the evolution of what, I sort of considered to be the root of the paleo diet years ago, which is like, just like, let's look at the science. And, you know, in 2000 sort of 11 to 2013, paleo had these um, like big conversations within the community, right? Like our potatoes, paleo, that was the, the big debate in 2011, 2012. And as different um you know, researchers. There used to be a more sort of direct connection um, in the sort of like blogging online community with researchers who were looking at various aspects of this question, and so there was a a more sort of like direct feedback between scientists and um, we we'll could say influencers, right? Like the the megaphone of of what is going to be paleo, and we had this huge debate of. Like whether or not potatoes should be excluded because they were prior to 2011. Potatoes were considered a—they um, were thrown into the same category as um, sort of junk food, right? As sort of like empty calories, and um, and the, and they're not, right? Potatoes actually have um, some some pretty compelling stuff to offer us. They have some inflammatory compounds. That's why they don't work for everybody. But the the Paleo diet has always sort of been designed for general health, and then you can layer on as necessary from there. And so way, way back in in the day of 2012, the community came together and had these big conversations, and then potatoes were accepted right? And then we kind of did the same thing around like green beans and peas in the pod, right? So like edible potted legumes. We had the same kind of conversation. When I first posted a green bean recipe, it was apparently a little bit too early in that conversation because I got all the internet trolls angry all at once. Um, And it was like this huge controversy that I had posted a recipe using green beans. And now, you know, all these years later, um, anybody coming into Paleo now goes, okay, no legumes except edible potted legumes are fine. Um, potatoes are not on a don't eat list anymore. Like the the those things have been accepted. But one of the things that's happened in the paleo community over the last few years is a little bit more of a disconnect um between that sort of methodical let's look at the science, let's, let's look at the big picture, right? Because, you know, science is a process. It's not, um, it's not static, right? So what we know is always changing as more research is performed. So let's look at what it says now compared to a few years ago. Let's reevaluate. That piece is something that's really important to me personally, and something that was much more integrated into the paleo community, um, you know, eight to 10 years ago than it is now. And so it's one of the reasons why this podcast has become not a paleo podcast, even though that's our roots um, in our own health journeys towards, you know, understanding uh, an optimal diet and lifestyle for us personally, and then where that's generally applicable. um, This podcast is staying rooted in the science. And unfortunately, what that is starting to do as we reevaluate the merits of some foods and who they might work for is it is it's it's sort of diverging from where the paleo community as a whole is is headed right now which is much more rigid
0: i will say too and i don't want someone to listen to this and think oh so everything you said before is is wrong no what we're saying is that there's a difference between you know, where you come from and what your body might need from an elimination diet standpoint, there's still a ton of validity to allowing your body to remove inflammatory, potentially inflammatory foods, depending on who you are and what your body's needs are. And then reintroducing those foods after your body has had an opportunity to heal. And there's also this different perspective of it's one thing if what you're trying to do is, um, you know, heal your body from an autoimmune disease so that you put the symptoms in remission and entirely different perspective for um, you're feeling well and you're trying to optimize your gut health. There is, of course, a cross section between gut health playing into the different sort of um, autoimmune diseases you might be seeing and stuff like that. But I personally wouldn't be jumping on, you know, legumes and corn and all of those things until I had everything else dialed in but that's me personally right like everybody needs to figure out what's best for them
1: yeah I think you know one of the things that um Stacey I'm really glad that you're emphasizing this that um I um I think is really important is that like my approach to understanding foods hasn't changed, right? I've been researching the gut microbiome for six years. Prior to that, my research was much more focused on um, immune function and the interaction with the immune system. The gut microbiome is actually a connection point between how how compounds and foods are interacting with the human body. So a lot of the Ah, uh, ways that foods impact immune function is through the gut microbiome, and so going into this research and really trying to not bring any bias with me as best I can, right? So to not um, to not be looking for a new way to rationalize the Paleo diet or a new way to rationalize the autoimmune protocol, but instead, like, just look at what the science says and try to um, try to understand where the consensus of the data is right now, and look at how that picture overlaps with how I've been eating for the last nine years. Um, I'm actually, uh, the, the day this episode goes live will be my nine year paleo anniversary. Um, and so it's, um, it's, for me, it's always been about understanding the physiology, um, the biochemistry of how foods interact with the human body. And what the looking at the microbiome research has done for me is it's given actually, um, it's not just that it's a, it's a different lens with which to, to look through, but it's a very, um, measurable system that's very sensitive. And so it's actually been able to, I think, resolve a lot of, um, what have really traditionally been considered 80, 20 foods, right. Or, um, you know, there's been this always been this like list of foods that have been sort of like more acceptable cheats, right. So you've always seen, for example, rice as being a fairly acceptable starch for the athletes within the paleo community. So that's like this paleo plus rice. And that was made more acceptable with, um, uh, Paul Jaminet's book, the perfect health diet, Um, there's always been these sort of like what are considered gray area foods, right? Reintroductions. They might work for some people, might not work for other people. And for me, you know, looking at the, how foods affect gut microbiome composition and gut microbiome metabolism has been a way of taking these sort of like gray area foods and giving them a more, um, like a, a stronger determinant, right? So they're, they're given rather than being this like, well, you know, if you go out for Mexican, it, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Right. Like they're that's sort of like the, the, the way of sort of rationalizing how these foods sort of fit into a paleo template. I think looking at the microbiome gives us more data to go on in terms of, informing who these foods might work for and who they might not. And I think that's the exercise I want to kind of go through in this week's episode with looking at corn. Um, it's, it's a really good example of a food that has been, um, uh, relegated to that eighty twenty for a long time, um, on paleo. Um, But if we start looking at the science, we can see a much more detailed picture that can help inform whether or not this food is going to work for you. And it's not going to work for everybody. Um, So, spoiler alert. But I think that um, this rooted in science approach is the same approach that we've always taken on this podcast, that I've always taken in my articles online. And we're continuing it now. Um, You know, sometimes it it aligns with the paleo framework and sometimes it doesn't. Um, it doesn't change how we look at the merits of of food, right? There's this criteria. What's the nutrient value? How does it impact insulin, hormone systems, immune health? You can now gut microbiome health. Um, so looking at all of those things, can we see, right, is there a trade off? Does this food offer a lot of nutrients, but it's also inflammatory? Or it, uh, you know, increases insulin resistance. Or is this food a clear winner because it is good for all of those different systems and provides lots of nutrients? Or is this food, you know, a uh, you know probably a food that most of us want to avoid because it doesn't offer us nutrients and it interferes with one of these systems? And that's the same approach we've always taken and we are going to continue to take. And today it's sort of like applying that to this one example so that we can. I hope communicate to our audience how, um, how we look at foods in this more sophisticated way, rather than just lumping everything up into food groups that are either yes food groups or no food groups.
0: I love that. And I, I will say, you know, spoiler alert, no matter how much you tell me, um, it has the potential to help gut health. Um, Corn does not work for me, so I'm mm-hmm. glad we're gonna go over yeah. my, why that might be at the end. Um, so I'm excited. You said we're we had a listener question. We're gonna dive in, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Our so our listener questions from Natalie. Um, and
1: Natalie wrote, "I was stumped by corn as a great for the gut food in your newsletter, Sarah. I thought it was extremely hard to digest. Can you please share why it is now good for the gut?" Um, thanks Natalie. Um, so there's, there's some nuance here. Um, corn hasn't changed. Let's, let's just be clear. Um, I think that what, um, corn has not benefited from the same type of community conversation as potatoes, as rice, as, um, edible potted legumes within the paleo community, right? Corn just hasn't had the benefit of um people going back into the scientific literature and really trying to understand what corn has to offer versus what might be problematic in corn. So it's not that corn has changed. It's that um i've I've done that work of going back into literature and really trying to understand how corn impacts the human. The human body. Um, and, you know, this was motivated by, you know, spending six years working on a book about the gut microbiome that um, has really given me the opportunity to reevaluate um, our historical stance on uh, within the paleo community on foods. And that historical stance is a pun, just FYI, it wasn't a very good one, was it?
0: It went over my head, but I'm sure that there's a, some other the historical
1: funny... stance, since a paleo anthropological. Uh, see, I was going right? to say, I'm
0: sure there's some other pun lovers who did catch
1: it. Like historical stance, huh? <laughs>
0: um,
1: let Let's sort of preface this uh, conversation with um, Let's preface it with uh, talking about the the too broad brush, I think, that that the paleo diet has painted some foods with. So, um, if uh, not all of our listeners necessarily follow a paleo diet, so as a uh, like quick soundbite recap, paleo has typically been described as uh, like eat like a caveman, right? Eat the way our um, Paleolithic ancestors ate, eat like a hunter gatherer. Uh, Eating the foods that were evolutionarily adapted to eat. And then when you go, okay, what's that? Then it's set, then it's described as no grains, no legumes, no dairy, no processed or refined foods. Um, And so paleo has always uh, very sort of the standard definition of paleo has been like what you don't eat, which we've already talked about on this show before of like why what you don't eat doesn't, that's not the thing that makes your diet healthy, right? It's what you actually eat that determines whether or not you're supplying your body with nutrition. Um, but one of the things that that's done, right, if we lump together all grains, corn is a grain, um, we're lumping together like wheat and rice and, you know, barley and corn and, um, all of these different foods, uh, we're basically treating them all as the same and and same with legumes, right? So we're treating peanuts and soy the same as um, black beans and lentils and chickpeas. And uh, with dairy, we're treating all dairy the same. So we're treating conventional grain fed, um, you know, homogenized milk with, with cows fed hormones. We're treating that the same as grass fed sheep dairy and the, the wonderful thing about looking at how foods impact the composition and metabolic activity of the gut microbiome is it gives us an opportunity to separate out the harmful grains from the non harmful grains, the harmful legumes from the non harmful legumes, the compounds in dairy that are not beneficial versus the compounds that are. And it allows us to, to look at, rather than lump just taking whole food groups and lumping them all together and either saying that's a yes f- food group or a no food group, it allows us to be much more detailed in our analysis. And I think that that's really important because there's a lot of ways to look at how grains impact our health um and i think that no matter how you dig into the science you see that it's um not all grains are the same and actually if you if you look at the um paleoanthropological record or if you look at hunter gatherers um there there's examples of legume and grain consumption um you know especially with legumes right we are we trying to say that all legumes are the are are all equally bad. Um but if you look at the Kung Sen, um they that sin bean is their second most important food source after the Mungongo nut. Um, so their their second most important food is a legume. Um the Australian Aborigines um very extensively harvest and eat um the seeds of the acacia tree, which are also Legumes. We have um, now growing evidence from um, looking at Neanderthal, uh, like what's in their tools and what's in their teeth. And we can see that they consumed wild legumes that are most similar to modern day peas and fava beans. And they also consumed wild grains, which are most similar to um, oats and, and barley. Um, and that they've been doing that f- they've at least forty six thousand years ago. there's some indication that that consumption goes back much earlier and looking at that record, you know that's that's not an argument to say uh, okay, you know all we need to eat is tofu and donuts because it's different than saying um, that we are adapted to a grain and legume based diet, but it what it implies is that um, that not all legumes, for example, are as inflammatory as soy and peanuts, and not all grains are as problematic as wheat. So that there are examples within these food groups of foods that were um were and are continued by you know to be eaten in large amounts by hunter-gatherers who are extremely healthy. And um context of a nutrient-dense, whole foods-based diet, a lifestyle that includes activity and connection and um, living in sync with the sun, uh, getting enough sleep, right, all of those other bits and pieces, foods can very, very likely work for a lot of people. And so what I'm really interested in doing is um, instead of um, creating rules at this macro level of food groups – is, um, getting much more granular and looking at individual foods. And I think that that sort of helps, you know, I think it helps to know that even if we take this sort of paleo approach to food, um, there's, um, there's enough evidence from both, uh, the, the paleolithic record as well as modern, modern studied hunter gatherers to indicate that, a whole food group approach is not enough detail like we're we're missing out and i think um i think the more that we can vary a diet the more we vary the nutrients the phytonutrients the m- the more we vary the fiber types that's very good for the microbiome like a varied diet has so many different benefits and so if we can revisit some of these foods and go hey these foods could work for some people um I think we, first of all, we get away from dogma and yes, no food lists, which I think is really important, um, but we also we also create a framework that's more accessible, and I think that's also extremely important and I you know I think that um, there's other aspects of how hunter gatherers eat um, that is obviously very important for health that has never been integrated into the paleo diet. Um, So, for example, um, a major point of contrast between hunter-gatherer diets and sort of the average diet in Western countries is fiber intake. So the fiber intake of most um, modern studied hunter-gatherers is anywhere between 50-ish, 45-ish grams of fiber a day, up to about 200 grams of fiber a day in some tribes. Um, They, on average, consume 100 to 200 different species of plant foods Regularly cycling through the seasons. Um, they would consume, for example, the partially digested grasses in the digestive tract of um, the herbivores that they're hunting, uh, which is not just a source of fiber, but it's a source of probiotics. And, um, you know, I'm not advocating for eating partially digested grass from a cow's stomach, um, but I think that we can look at this fiber intake as like a a really important thing right we know that high fiber diets link with lower disease risk across the board we know that high fiber diets are really important for the gut microbiome and there's you would think that given how how ubiquitous this high fiber intake is in hunter-gatherers that that would have been a feature of the paleo diet and it just never has been um because again it's sort of been traditionally viewed as uh lumping foods together in food groups and giving that food group either a stamp of approval or a a big like red crossed out thing that sign has a name of some kind doesn't it what like the no smoking sign but like grains on the other side
0: I just always think of that as like a no sign.
1: Okay. Let's call it a no sign.
0: I feel like it has a <laughs> it more specific name. A, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but I I don't know what it's called. Um, I'm sure there's like seven hundred people screaming the name of that sign at their <laughs> like speakers right now. How um which I appreciate. Thank you. Um Matt can chime in if it's got a special name. But um but so I think that there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of really, I think, good reasons to be reevaluating the merits of these foods. So, why is the gut microbiome a great way to do that? Um, the gut microbiome is uh, the composition, right? So what types of bacteria, fungi, archaea want to live there? Is directly related to the environment they live in. So they're very sensitive to, exam- for example, to the pH of the environment they're living in. It's it's very sensitive to the foods that they're getting to eat. So they eat what what we eat and don't digest. Um, and so depending on what foods they're eating, that will feed different species. So they're they're a, it's a very sensitive ecosystem to permutation. And you can you can change your diet and completely change the species of bacteria that are thriving in your gut in as little as two to three days. It is a very sensitive system, and you can we can measure it um, pretty easily now. So we've got you know these ways where we can look at uh, bacterial uh, DNA and RNA in stool and get a pretty good picture of what is living in the small and large intestine that way. And so we have these ways of, of measuring. We can also do animal studies. There's a lot of different animal models that are really good ways to understand permutations in the gut microbiome. Um, and so it's a system that's very, um, it's relatively straightforward to measure what's happening in that system. We can also look at bacterial metabolites. So, uh, what's often looked at is how how much short chain fatty acids they're producing because those are some of the main ways that they promote our health is through the production of short chain fatty acids those improve our cellular health um, so we can look at the the things that they're producing as a result of their microbial activity um, and then we can look at what strains are growing and we can measure that very well very well with current technology um, they change pretty quickly so we can um do you know both short and long term intervention studies where we like here eat this thing every day for 4 weeks or 6 weeks and we can we can measure differences in um in in humans and go oh look eating this thing caused these species to grow or these species to stop growing right so we can do before and after uh measurements and so that can give us a really good picture the other piece of this is like our gut microbiomes are important for that for the health and activity of every cell in our body. So the the more we learn about what our gut bacteria do, the more like true the statement is they do everything. Um, so they basically act as a a virtual digestive organ. They break down th- thousands of different constituents of foods that are incompatible with our own digestive processes. So they in that breaking down of different food compounds, they form important nutrients for us, they impact how nutrients are absorbed, they impact how nutrients are metabolized. They produce a like something like 6000 different bioactive compounds that are absorbed into our body. We really only understand um, maybe what 50 or 60 of them actually do. but among those ones that we understand, they're um, producing important hormones, they're producing neurotransmitters. They um, literally the the chemicals that our gut microbes produce control how leaky the blood-brain barrier is. like that is, Incredible to think that they are impacting the health of every cell, but they are. um, And they do it through this production of bioactive molecules uh, as a result of microbial metabolism that are absorbed into our body and that bind with receptors and then trigger some kind of process. Um, They're important for several detoxification processes. Um, They're really essential for the development and maturation of the immune system. Um, They help to maintain a balanced immune system. So our gut bacteria are literally modulating the different populations of immune cells so that our immune system can work effectively and not go in overdrive. Um, They directly control how permeable the gut barrier is. So this has been one of the the most important things for me to, to really learn and wrap my head around because talking about leaky gut has been um, it's been such a big topic in alternative health communities for a, a decade or so, like fixing a leaky gut has, has really, um, has really permeated, I think, all health conscious communities. And we're so focused on nutrients for gut barrier health, um, things that interfere with gut, gut barrier health, but it's really the microbiome that is the the master controller here. They're literally controlling the assembly of the proteins that glue the the gut, uh, small intestine cells together. So um, we can't fix a leaky gut without fixing an unhealthy gut microbiome. Um, and so it it really becomes this this like central point, right? They they are involved in the health of every cell, and that's why we're at a point now where we can say that at least ninety percent of all disease is linked to the gut microbiome in some way. And so gut dysbiosis and unhealthy gut microbiome has been linked to, I'm going to read a whole pile of different things, obesity, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, liver disease, gout, chronic fatigue syndrome, neurodegenerative disease, schizophrenia, autism spectrum disorder, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, depression, anxiety, mania, bipolar disease, addiction, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, thyroid disease, all other autoimmune diseases that have been looked at, including IBD, as well as IBS, all other gastrointestinal diseases, asthma, allergies, food intolerance, skin conditions, osteoporosis, sexual dysfunction, PCOS, and risk of infection.
0: That's uh, a long list. I was just letting it sit while I found my unmute button. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I... I mean, I'm not surprised, right? Um, What I think is important is to figure out how we can moderate these things for ourselves so that Mm -hmm. um, we are feeding our... What did you used to call them? Pets? Yeah. Our pets. Our little little gut bacteria pets. In a way that promotes... um, them to be happy and healthy and avoid some of these things right like and and i say some of these things because i want to remind our listeners that um food is not the only form of medicine there are a lot of things in lifestyle that lead Mm -hmm. to um gut health and other things being affected including you know, stress, sunshine, exercise, and genetics. So no matter what you do, in some cases, um, things will happen regardless. So give yourself the grace that you do the best that you can with the knowledge that you have. And if you still continue to have some of these symptoms, that's what modern medicine is for. I just needed to say that because... So good. Sometimes we do everything we can and we still have allergies or whatever. And that's totally fine. That's why we have medicine. (laughs) Because you don't want to, in the case of, for example, my mom, accidentally eat gluten, go into anaphylactic shock and say, nope, I'm not going to use medicine. Like, that's, that's not the approach we want.
1: No, don't do that uh definitely epipens are um magical but like in magical in the science way they're they're sci- science
0: sensationally not... scientific magic Ooh, I, like I don't it. know we need to work on that
1: yeah we definitely need a way to say something is magical while uh emphasizing that it's not real magic that it's science um but uh but yeah, so th- I thank you for that point, because I think before we get into nitty-gritty corn, I think that it's important to emphasize that the eating patterns that are really important for gut microbiome are the things that we have been talking about on this podcast forever. Um, there are things that are look like the paleo diet or the autoimmune protocol diet, um, at least how we've been communicating it. So it is a high intake of vegetables, fruit, mushrooms as their own food group, um, high-quality meats, lots of seafood, snout-to-tail eating, um, phytochemical-rich foods like a high-quality olive oil like tea, coffee, uh, cacao or cocoa, dark chocolate. I always like to put that in there. Herbs and spices, right? Those those are the fundamental things that are really important for a gut microbiome, and like you said, Stacey our gut health is also very sensitive to lifestyle. So getting enough sleep, living in sync with circadian rhythm, um, eating breakfast and eating distinct meals, avoiding grazing, um, our vitamin D status, our stress levels, uh, activity. Did I say activity? So all of those things are impacting our gut bacteria. So they are also very sensitive to our hormone environment. Um, and that's where there's, Times where you can sort of do everything right, and it still requires a um, you know healthcare provider to provide some kind of intervention for the things that um, the the sort of linchpin things in terms of our health that cannot necessarily be addressed with diet and lifestyle, or that once that thing's addressed, then our bodies can respond to the good diet and lifestyle. Right. So, keeping all of that in mind, that our our gut microbiome composition is. In general, best supported by a high vegetable consumption, uh, moderate carb, moderate protein, moderate fat. They really like omega three fats and monounsaturated fats, and they really like phytochemical rich foods. Um, and so, the, those are the those are the big picture things. And then there, as we get into some of the other foods, right? There's this whole collection of foods that um, are good for the gut microbiome, but aren't like foundational necessarily. So if there are foods that you can't tolerate, your gut microbiome is going to be fine if you're doing all the other things. Um, And that is, I think, where corn fits. Um, But there's a bunch of other foods that for me, like as I was going through this research, uh, these are what I sort of considered were the surprises. So certain foods, I wasn't, you know, I was, I was kind of expecting given how, how much fiber legumes have, I'm not surprised that most legumes are good for the gut microbiome. What's interesting is that like soy is really terrible for the gut microbiome. But if you look at things like, I mean, here's all the ones that are good. Black beans, chickpeas, cranberry beans, fava beans, green beans, lentils, mung beans, peas, both fresh and split, snap peas, snow peas, and wax beans, right? Those are all... (laughs) the legumes that are good. So we've got our fresh, our fresh um, edible potted legumes, but we've also got a collection of dried bean type legumes that would normally be excluded on paleo that um, show that they're actually good for the gut microbiome. What surprised me was that brown rice is better for the gut microbiome than rice. What surprised me is that gluten-free oats and barley are really good for the gut microbiome. They have a really unique fiber type Um, called beta-glucans that other grains don't have very much of. And it turns out that that fiber type, which by the way, we also get from mushrooms, is the only other food that we can get it from. But that fiber type is really important for the gut microbiome. Um, I was surprised to see that A2 dairy uh, is really good for the gut microbiome, as is whey protein. But A1 dairy So, A1 being the normal cow dairy that most people are getting from a grocery store. A2, there are some cows that produce A2 dairy, um, but where most people are getting A2 would be sheep um, dairy, uh, goat dairy, camel dairy. Um, So, these alternative dairy sources tend to be A2. Um, So, the gut microbiome likes A2. A1 Buffalo. Buffalo's A2.
0: Sweet. I just want to point out how easy it is to find buffalo dairy in the store? Because you hear that and you're like, huh? That's like mozzarella. Mozzarella, Yeah.
1: Um, You know, feta is typically goat or sheep. I mean, rock uh, Rockford is typically sheep, I think. So there's, um, I don't know why that one, ricotta is typically sheep. Um, Romano can be either goat or sheep. Uh, I'm trying to think. Chevre, of course, is goat. Um, So you know, it's, it requires some label reading. If it doesn't say an animal, then assume it's a cow. Um, but there, there it's, it's, I think easier than it used to be, um, to find a two dairy. I think it used to be, you'd have to go to like a specialty shop. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, um, I was surprised to find that quinoa is good for the gut microbiome. Like I was, I was super anti quinoa until I started getting into these these details. But the thing that I want to emphasize is uh the two two sides of a of a coin. So one, I think these foods that are uh the science shows are really good for the gut microbiome are worth a relook. They're worth um if you have been avoiding them for a very long time, um, considering, you know, your diff you your, obviously your individual situation, um, you know, they're worth experimenting with with a methodical reintroduction. Um, I would definitely not just jump into all of them. Um, they these are not foods that are like going to be incorporated into the AIP anytime soon. There's problems with all of them, and as we get into corn, you'll that's a really good example of um, understanding the give and take with some of these foods. Um, so, but the, I think they're foods that deserve they, they deserve our, uh, they deserve a second look. Um, and at the same time, um, none of these foods are what I would consider foundational foods. None of these foods are so important for the gut microbiome or so nutrient dense that we can't be healthy without them. So, um, so I really want to make sure that it's it's clear that if these foods don't work for you, right, Stacey? You mentioned that you are not going near corn anytime soon, ever.
0: So there's actually some nuance to that, and I I think we'll get into it. (laughs) All
1: right, so let's let's get into Natalie's really specific question about about corn. I think that corn has been, um, corn has has in part within the paleo community, it's been thrown into this category with other grains, right? So that it's a grain and grains are bad. So it, it's kind of been maligned that way. But the one of the things that has not done corn any favors whatsoever is all of the uh, refined and manufactured foods that utilize corn as a base, right? Like high fructose corn syrup has not done corn any favors in the PR department. And so I think that um, if you look at corn oil, right that's a highly oxidized oil, corn syrup um, high in fructose um if you if you look at those types of ingredients um that are nutrition, they're often stripped of their beneficial fiber that is that is one of the things that gives corn sort of a bad name so i want i want to talk about not all the refined manufactured products made from corn as a base, because I think we can all agree that a purified sugar with no nutrition is not going to be cool. Um, A highly oxidized oil is not going to be cool. Like we've talked about those types of ingredients uh, approximately a bajillion times. But let's talk about whole corn, right? So let's talk about um, sweet corn that is often eaten as a vegetable, right? That's the, the corn on the cob. Or we can talk about cornmeal, which is um, basically dried and ground whole corn um, that's used to make uh, cornbread or polenta or or, or things like that. Um, Corn grits, for example. So looking at a whole corn, corn is a really fantastic source of fiber. Um, That's going to be relevant, uh, Stacey, when you ask me your question. Um, It's also a really good source of B vitamins, vitamin C, and some minerals. Um, yellow corn is a really good source of carotenoids, um, but corn in general actually has a fair amount of phytonutrients. So um, for example, a cup of fresh sweet corn, so that might be like the frozen corn that uh, you just quickly steam, or you might cut it off the cob, has about 132 calories um, and for that relatively low amount of calories, I mean not, not as low as broccoli, obviously, but not as high as any other grain, you're getting 4.2 grams of fiber, just a lot. Um, 21 grams, or sorry, 21% of your daily value for B1, 18% of folate. Um, or vitamin B9, you're getting 17% of vitamin C, 14% for magnesium and phosphorus, 13% for vitamin B3, 12% for vitamin B5, and about the same for potassium and manganese. And uh, that makes corn, whole corn, a nutrient-dense food. Um, Corn also has some really exciting polyphenols. Um, It has ferulic acid, which has been shown to be an incredibly important antioxidant that uh, reduces inflammation. It's been shown to have anti-cancer effects to prevent the toxicity associated with chemotherapy and radiation therapy for cancer. It's been shown to have anti-diabetic effects, uh, anti-aging effects It, um, protects the liver and lungs from injury. It's been shown to protect against neurodegenerative disease. Um, it's been shown to reduce cardiovascular disease risk factors. Like it's a really beneficial, um, phytonutrient. It has coumaric acid, which is also a really important, um, anti-inflammatory phytonutrient. It's, um, actually been shown to be very helpful for immune regulation. It's been shown to improve bone density, to act as an antidepressant, to have anti-cancer effects, uh, to prevent kidney damage. Um, And it's actually been shown to protect uh, against tissue damage that's caused by drugs and alcohol. It has, corn has caffeic acid, which has been shown again, anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, Uh, also, uh, prevents, um, against the toxicity associated with chemotherapy and radiation therapy, also anti-diabetic, also anti-aging, also, um, uh, protective against neurodegenerative diseases, and also interesting reduces exercise related fatigue. So it can help energize and improve exercise performance. Corn also has a fair amount of syringic acid, um, less well studied, Um, but also shown to have some potential anti-cancer effects, anti-diabetes effects, and protect liver and lung from damage. And it has vanillic acid, which um, has also been shown to be a very good antioxidant and anti-inflammatory and may actually have some analgesic properties, so it can act as a a pain reliever. Um, And vanillic acid is a really interesting antimicrobial, so it can have uh, effects... um, on fungi and bacteria, reducing growth, which a lot of phytochemicals are beneficial for the gut microbiome because they act as selective antimicrobials against pathogens. And that's sort of where vanillic acid um, falls into place. Uh, Corn also has phytosterols, um, which have a very similar structure to cholesterol. And so um, because of that, they actually inhibit cholesterol resorption in the intestines. And so they can help to lower LDL cholesterol. It's one of why high vegetable diets can be very beneficial for cardiovascular disease risk factors. Um, and so, you know, if you, we look at whole corn, it, it has a lot of, um, compounds in it that are beneficial nutrients, whether they're essential or non-essential. Um, and because of the the fiber content there's been a bunch of studies showing that corn can be beneficial so um there's been studies showing that corn can um enhance satiety which basically means it makes you feel more full um and corn also is a good source of resistant starch um so that can actually help to um let, basically flatten the spike of glucose and insulin after um, a meal. So between the fiber and the resistant starch, it can help to regulate blood sugar levels. Um, There was a study done in like 47,000 adult men over 18 years that showed that consuming popcorn at least twice a week was associated with a 28% reduced risk of diverticulitis. Um, And this is really interesting because often That's people with super, diverticular yes, disease. I'm
0: like, wait, hold up. Yeah. That's super interesting because I'm, assu- I'm assuming it has to do with the fiber. Is there, yes. it's proposed. Okay. Am I just like making this up or do we have science? Nope.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, the, no, there's science. So, so this is a really interesting thing is that often people with diverticular disease are told to go on a low residue diet, which basically means a low fiber diet. And that is not supported that's not supported by the science at all so the science actually shows that eating more insoluble fiber like what's in uh, the dominant fiber type in corn um, is actually beneficial and part of that is that it helps to uh, increase transit so it's basically regulating this it controls the speed limit let's let's Yes, it sets the speed limit to a little bit of a higher speed, um, but it also helps all of the traffic move at a consistent speed, which is really, really good for the the walls of our intestines, so they don't end up getting stretched by a low speed limit. I hope this is not. Um, I hope I hope I'm I'm talking in language that people are understanding without getting into uh, too much detail that will embarrass Stacy for the next month. Um, I started so, it. It's true. So yeah, so um, insoluble fiber, of which corn has a lot, really helps to control that speed. But also the type of bacteria that grow on that fiber type tend to be really important probiotic species that are controlling inflammation. Um, And there's uh, an impact of this fiber type on sort of the regenerative capacity of the gut wall. So it can basically... Help to regulate how quickly those cells are turning over. so they're if they're turning over too slowly, you basically end up um, l- losing uh, the structure of the intestines, and that can be problematic. If they're turning over too quickly, they're not getting replaced. Uh, the cells are not getting replaced um, as quickly as they should be. So you, that is another thing that really needs to be regulated and insoluble fiber is really important for that as are the species of bacteria that insoluble fiber helps benefit. So there are are some studies that have looked at like how corn, um, like the whole corn is impacting, um, the, the gut microbiome and studies have shown that, um, like as little as like, uh, two ounces of a, whole corn based, you know, they're basically creating like a cereal out of whole corn um, and giving it to people and they'll do it. Right. So these are crossover studies where like you get to eat this for three weeks and you get to eat a placebo and then you switch so they can see what's happening in as little as three weeks and they can do, um, they can do dose responses here too. And they've basically shown that bifidobacterium, love that corn is really high in a type of fiber called hemicellulose and bifidobacterium love it. And bifidobacterium are one of the most important probiotic, um, genera in our gut. So there's many, many species of bifidobacterium. They're all really, really good. And they are some of our most important, uh, vitamin producers. They're some of our most important, um, inflammation micromanagers, um, and they're a really important sort of species for the gut microbial community in general. Um, studies have shown that eating uh, whole corn or corn fiber actually enhances calcium absorption, which is controlled by our gut microbiomes. So uh, super cool. Um, that's specifically associated with two uh, genera that go up. Called One's called... Um, parabacteroides and the other one's called clostridium. Within clostridium, there's a lot of beneficial species and there's a, a handful of, of pathogenic ones. Um, so when we see these types of uh, sort of beneficial effects associated with clostridium, we can we generally make the assumption that we're growing some of the probiotic clostridium and not the, the handful of, of pathogenic ones. Um, and then Um, the resistant starch from corn has been shown to be really, really important as well. That increases gut microbiome metabolism, producing those really important short-chain fatty acids, and that's been shown to increase the growth of uh, roseburia, which is a very, very important genus of probiotic bacteria, as well as um, blautia, which are considered more commensals. So we've got also some really great research, um, including research in humans, showing that corn does some great things
0: so this so. kind of leads me to one of my questions mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have noticed over the last few years that in accidentally consuming cornstarch and not having a violent reaction when I say violent reaction when I have when I have eaten corn meal in the past within 20 minutes you can actually see the joints in my body uh, become enlarged like a balloon Mm -hmm. filling up with what I can only assume is like water or inflammation. Like the inflammation literally floods my joints within like 20 minutes. It's crazy. That does not sound cool. That sounds like my, my reaction to dairy. It is. Yes. It is unbelievable. Like, honestly, I was showing Matt my hands and I'm like, look how my ring is fitting. And I would show him like every minute how, like I could not get my ring off anymore. You know what I mean? Like it was insane. Yeah. So then there was an incident. But, so I do, I avoid corn entirely. Like it's not even something I'm willing to even think about. But then I accidentally consumed corn starch and did not have a problem and mm-hmm. was like, whoa, what is happening? And so it was interesting. I just, while you were talking, was looking up how much fiber there is in the um, corn starch because you mentioned that the resistant starch from corn has been shown to on its own have some benefits but I don't think personally this is me not sarah and science talking I don't think that corn starch is really like a food right we've talked about how once you start yeah. breaking apart foods it's not it doesn't have the same um health benefits of all the things that you've been talking about but I was like there's something going on with pulling out, maybe it's the protein of corn or something mm-hmm. that is the inflammatory aspect, which is very similar to dairy, for example, that a lot of people can't do for, for example, me, I can't do regular dairy. Like I couldn't drink a glass of 2% milk, but I can do, um, like organic grass fed heavy cream or a two dairy, um, without issues. And that's because it's either higher fat or it has a different kind of protein. Right. So, yep. um, um, I'm wondering if maybe you can talk a little bit to that. And there is, by the way, some fiber in just the starch. Not So where you said there was over four in a cup of cornmeal, there's, um, if I looked it up properly, 1.2 grams. So relatively, that's 4% of your daily value in a cup of cornstarch. So there's not very much fiber yeah. in, like, you know, if you if you were putting it on, like, a you know, a a small, most corn starch is used in a small amount on something. It's not like you're eating cups of it. It's not going to add substantially. It's also, by the
1: time it's processed into corn starch, the the fiber that's left is the resistant starch. So the fiber that's stripped out is the hemicellulose. So it's still a beneficial fiber, but um, resistant starch and hemicellulose uh, are like, um, they're like Batman and Robin. They work together. They're really, they're Um, much more beneficial in combination with each other. And it's actually interesting because we see them in whole foods together fairly often, and we see them separated in refined foods or in supplements fairly often. Um, But the science actually shows that um, hemicellulose helps to control where resistant starch is actually metabolized in the digestive tract, um, and that that's really important for how resistant starch actually impacts our health. So um, again, right? I wouldn't say avoiding the small amount of cornstarch that's in recipes or whatever, um, but it's always, you know, the case I'm making is not for cornstarch. The case I'm making is for whole corn. Um, but you're right, Stacy, that there there are some problems with it, and that a lot of those problems are associated with the protein in corn. So when we when we have either a food allergy or a food intolerance. Those are driven by antibody production. Um, and the, what the antibody binds to is a piece of a protein. So if you take out the protein, even if you're um, allergic to something, if you really take out all of the protein, then there's no protein there to drive the allergy. So that, Stacey, is probably why you're okay with corn starch, but not anything that would be c- continue to have the, the corn protein. And corn has um, not a particularly high... Allergy rate. So it's um, estimated to be a little over 1% of Americans have an actual allergy to corn. So that's where you're producing IgE type antibodies, which increase the production of histamine. And histamine is the thing that's making the rashes, hives, itchy skin, uh, sneezing. Um, It can, that's the thing that when you go into anaphylaxis, that's because there's a ton of histamine being produced. So you can get the um, swelling in like lips and ears and face. Um, all of those reactions are driven by histamine and that release is caused by the binding of IgE antibodies with a protein in whatever you're allergic to. Um, but corn has also been shown to be a gluten cross-reactor. So people who make antibodies to gluten and you can react to gluten in ways that don't involve antibody production. Um, so if you make an antibody to gluten, uh, some th- up to maybe about 25% of people who make antibodies to gluten, that that antibody will also bind to corn. That type of antibody um, can be an IgE antibody, so driving an allergy, but it can also be an IgG or IgA antibody, which drives what's called food intolerance. Um, so it's a different, it's not driving histamine production. So it's a slightly different type of reaction, it's going to be more associated with, uh, GI symptoms or headaches or, uh, fatigue, um, cranky moods, uh, skin changes sometimes as well. Um, so the, the symptoms of a intolerance look a little bit different and they tend to be slower. Um, so generally an allergy is a faster reaction. Um, and an intolerance is usually more like a few hours compared to 10 or 20 minutes. 10 or 20 minutes tends to be an allergy driven reaction, although there are some processes where an intolerance can be pretty quick. Um, and this is where, um, you know, studies ha- that have looked at, for example, um, there's a study that looked at people with inflammatory bowel disease, and they showed that 67% of the Crohn's disease sufferers in that study had, uh, IgG intolerance to corn compared to 2% of healthy controls. So corn is definitely something that our bodies have the capacity to create antibodies against and learn as a food intolerance and probably having, uh, a leaky gut makes that more likely. And so this is, this is, uh, one of two really important reasons why, Um, if you want to try corn, I mean, this is a individual decision that needs to be informed by your personal health history. And I recommend always a methodical reintroduction protocol. There's another piece to this though. And that is that corn is one of the most heavily sprayed crops, so back in episode 405, we talked about the impact of a uh, glyphosate on the gut microbiome. Um, and, uh, glyphosate is used extensively on corn. Um, GMO corn is only used for animal feed, but one of the things we know is that, um, those fields, right? It's the air around, right? So, um, you get the residues on um, the field next door that's non-GMO. You get the residues through the equipment that's being used to process, and so the um, the measurements right now. The FDA did uh, a, they called it the Pesticide Residue Monitoring Report. Um, it's supposed to be come out every two years. The 2018 report uh, seems to be <laughs> currently missing. Um, But the 2016 report um, showed that the 63% of the food crop corn um, had levels that were above what were considered like the, they had levels that were considered uh, measurable. So it had, oh, look, it's got, got some, but they were considered below acceptable maximums, which are set much too high in the USA. Um, and that particular report did not give raw data. So it didn't say what the levels actually are. So we can't actually compare it to the studies that show, you know, for example, very, very small amounts of, of glyphosate in contaminated water, for example, could um, interfere with the gut microbiome. Um, There has also been some studies done from um, third parties. Uh, So, for example, the Detox Project and Food Democracy Now! did a study where they sent a bunch of foods off of the grocery store shelf away for third-party testing, and that included breakfast cereals and crackers and cookies. And they actually found levels of measurable glyphosate, including some very high levels in every single thing that they took. And so that's in large part because of how heavily sprayed uh, corn is and soy, um, and wheat, and and that those are ingredients in a lot of popular foods that you would get in a box or a package
0: in a grocery store. I just want to give so the- a, a shout out and a plug to our previous blog and podcast cohort, Crystal, who homesteads um her instagram is whole fed homestead she does a fantastic job of talking about heirloom both from Mm -hmm. um like growing and harvesting your own if you're interested but also um, she talks about sources and different kinds of things like if you're um i learned so much about heirloom like tomatoes and corn and different kinds of things from her um and i do think Sarah like this is such a fantastic point to make which is that uh, what I've heard and maybe you can correct me if the science is is different than what what I'm about to say but what I've heard is that if you look at like a sprayed um, wheat for example versus like an heirloom wheat like genetically they're not even the same and that has to do with also the fact that we've kind of made it more hardy to withstand things so that You know, back when there was a food shortage and blah, blah, blah. Right. But like your body would not necessarily if if it had been adjusted to like the old heirloom, original kind of either wheat or corn or soy or whatever. um, And maybe what you were talking about earlier from kind of an ancestral perspective is not the same food that your body would recognize today, like your biology, your pets, Mm -hmm. your microbiome, your whatever, right? Like your, your body doesn't recognize them as the same foods. Yeah,
1: I would. I mean, I think that, um, how foods are selected is very different compared to, um, like depending on the region, depending on what the, the goal is. And so, there's some forms of, like, driven selection, right, where you're taking the seeds from the plant that have the best whatever and those are the seeds that you plant in the next crop. Like, humans have done this for thousands of years, um, you know, without necessarily understanding Mendelian genetics. Um, And so sometimes those selection processes um, make a better food and sometimes they don't. And I think the thing – the thing about heirloom varieties is that there tends to be a they tend to have more variety, right so if you think about how many different heirloom tomatoes there are versus the three kinds of tomatoes that you would find in a grocery store, that variety is changing the phytochemical slightly is changing the the nutrient profile slightly um so heirloom ver- varieties in general um, you know they're grown. Uh, they tend to be grown organically they tend to be grown um without um uh without uh any kind of uh like unhealthy intervention right like spraying with pesticides um and they tend to embrace variety so if this funny looking tomato is this color and this funny looking tomato heirloom tomato is this color and it's all going to be good um but you know, even a lot of our heirloom varieties are varieties that have still been uh, manipulated in uh, selection from humans over hundreds of years, because it still was that, oh, we'll grab the seeds from that one and and plant it. And then those are the genes that are propagated. in the next one, I mean, this is how different, uh, you know, different breeds of dogs and cats are, are created as well, right? It is a, uh, grab the, the parents that have these properties and breed them to get these properties. And over generations, you end up with a different breed or in plants, it would be a different cultivar. Um, and so in how, um, problematic a modern version of something that there's an heirloom version is, is very dependent on this particular situation. So I think one of the things we've talked about on the show before is that like genetic modification is a very catch all term. So it can include anything from like in a lab actually splicing DNA all the way to I grabbed the seeds from the pretty one that I liked the most and I planted those and then I grabbed I did it again and and again and again over years and now they all look the same like that pretty one. Um. So it can it can encompass all of those things, and so even the the lab techniques they're very very well established techniques. It's a very safe technology. There's not an issue with the technology. There's an issue with the goal. The problem is with how the technology is being used, and so what it's being done right now is it's being used to make food crops um, or crops that are being used for animal feed. Um, resilient to being sprayed with huge amounts of glyphosate, so that we can spray this pesticide that used to be thought of as safe, but we now recognize is causing gut dysbiosis and uh, is not safe, um, but is now being used, you know, in huge amounts. And so that is an example of where the technology is being used um, with a very simplistic idea of increasing crop yield. Um, and it's allowing for that food to be sprayed with something that is making that food unhealthy for us. And so it's you know, I would say that the the same thing is true about um about any type of a seed that has been selected for is the the goal is very important and the full picture is very important. So heirloom is great in the sense that heirloom varieties tend to be in season because they tend not to be as, um, uh, weather tolerant. They tend to be grown organically because the people who are attracted to heirloom varieties tend to also prioritize heirloom gardening. So those are all the reasons why they're great. I know that all of the corn that I consume is organic heirloom and whole food corn. Um, and, uh, and so I think that's a really important point, but I kind of want to infuse a little bit of nuance into the conversation of, um, you know, humans have been manipulating the genetics of their crops for a few thousand years. Um, and it it can be as simple as um, only planting the seeds from the one that has whatever properties. And so even heirloom varieties still have had some control, um, where you don't have that control is a wild variety. Um, so that's another fun thing to look for is, um, uh, we're not going to find it for corn, but like you will find it for some types of berries, some types of, uh, onion family mushrooms. So when you're eating the wild thing, um, there's, you know, wild apples, for example, that's where you're getting the the more um, akin to what our hunter-gatherers would have consumed version of that food.
0: Okay, I do have another question. Yes. <laughs> I have to like <clears throat> gather Is this myself? the question
1: that we, we previewed at the very top yes. of the show?
0: So if yeah. you are seeing corn mm-hmm. in its complete form,
1: mm-hmm. are you
0: digesting it? And are you still getting all of these benefits that we just talked about?
1: Um I mean if it's coming out the other end intact you did not digest it. <laughs> so um you know generally um one of the things that uh identifiable food in stool Uh, indicates oh my god I'm so uncomfortable with how like and you had to say it so so slow and I was like
0: (laughs) oh god
1: well I'm I'm trying to select my words to be (laughs) more on the technical side for you
0: listeners Um, if you don't know despite having four boys who potty talk day and night for some reason I get so uncomfortable talking (laughs) about body stuff on the show. Like I don't understand. It's this is not who I want to be in life, but it's just it's where we are. <laughs> and it also it comes up in an episode at least once a month. Ugh. So um
1: at some point you're gonna be desensitized, I'm sure.
0: I mean you're I'm probably at, not I, at least I'm asking questions at this point. I feel like we've come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: so identifiable things in stool um is very revealing typically in terms of either uh, digestive processes or gut microbiome. So um, one of the first things is chewing. And chewing is a really important thing to do for digestion because our teeth break things up into small bits so that all of the enzymes that our bodies make to digest can access the small bits. Um, And so because corn has this very fibrous outside um, sort of like coating, right? Like the it has the skin over it that's made of fiber. If we don't chew it well, um, that makes it so like our our digestive enzymes can't access what's inside very easily at all. And then you need a very like hemicellulose fiber adapted gut microbiome to be able to break that down. And so seeing it intact can mean as little, I mean, it could mean as simple as, um, I, uh, was a vacuum cleaner and I sucked up my meal instead of chewing it, uh, guilty as charged. Uh, That's one of my worst eating habits. I tend to eat very quickly and I have to remind myself to slow down all the time. Um, so then, you know, generally, it, uh, there's plenty in corn that is, should be accessible to our digestive processes, but there's way more in corn that is a food for our gut microbiome. So all of that fiber is feeding our gut bacteria, not us. And so the other piece of this is um, those species of bacteria that are going to help break down whole corn are ones that really need to be nurtured with a gut microbiome friendly diet all the time and need to be nurtured with a gut microbiome friendly lifestyle all the time and are um, sensitive to our vitamin D status. So if we're low in vitamin D, we're going to have a really hard time growing those bacteria. And so um, it could be as simple as like uh, chewing more thoroughly, um, but it also can reveal a um, missing collection of species in the gut microbiome that need to be nurtured on a more regular basis. And there's some missing piece. That's the reason why that they're not, they're not growing very well. So when, uh, a person both chews thoroughly and has healthy digestion, and then also has a healthy gut microbiome, um, typically there's, uh, not fully identifiable giant pieces making it through to the other end intact. Um, and so it's, Um, not a given that eating, say, corn on the cob is going to go straight through you. It's um, rather, if it does, it's a indication that there's some aspect of gut health, whether it's human digestive processes, of which chewing is step one, or gut microbiome digestive processes that are missing.
0: That is super helpful and fascinating because I will say, I haven't had corn. Let me just be very clear. I personally have not had whole corn in over a decade, I think. Like essentially, once I realized corn did not work for me, I'm like, nope, I'm going to pass. I'll eat something else. Um, And I don't eat popcorn. I don't eat um, cornmeal, polenta, anything like that either. Um, But I did reintroduce Peas and I had the same issue with peas before I did all of my personal lifestyle and dietary changes, and then now I eat peas and I do not have that problem. So, um I, As we all know, I have worked a lot on my digestion, specifically because I don't have a gallbladder. And the changes – I was a vegetarian, so I had low stomach acid. And then I don't have a gallbladder, so I have further lower stomach acid. And I did a ton of work over a couple of years to um, improve digestion. And I would not be surprised if that were one of the contributing factors to – better digestion go figure working on that produces results (laughs) um because I'm assuming it would be the same thing for something like peas or legumes or other Mm -hmm. things that people um might be able to recognize later (laughs) yes I mean um
1: once in a while there are some external factors that can uh like stress or uh high levels of activity that can speed up transit so that basically uh neither your digestive processes or your gut microbiome's digestive processes have enough time to work in which case it's more of a issue of like how that me- that meal timed with that you know really hard workout that's like a one off right so that's a thing that you can oh okay i'm going to make sure that i don't do a- that hard workout uh right right after a or within 2 hours after a bigger meal Um, generally good rule of thumb. Um, but that if it's consistent, like every time I eat that food, I can see it come out the other end. Um, that's revealing some, some part of that digestion chain because our gut microbiome are like a virtual digestive organ. So they digest, uh, the vast majority of the things that we can't, which is why it's not normal to be able to identify your last meal in the toilet. Um, so, if if that's happening regularly, it's a it's a good indicator that there's something missing in that digestive process. And whether it's a human digestive process or a gut microbiome digestive process um, can be hard to tell. Um so there's, you know, work on gut microbiome health, work on digestive health. There's supplements you can take to support either side of that equation. But this is also where working with a Functional medicine practitioner who's sort of well familiar with gut health can be very very helpful because they can uh, do various tests and so oh look you've got low stomach acid or um, you know that you your gallbladder is not producing enough or you know enough bile with each meal while your liver makes the you know the liver makes the bile salts yes. but it's stored in the
0: gallbladder. I did to be very clear I have mentioned this before but I'll mention it again I did work with a health practitioner and received prescribed. They were supplements, but they Mm -hmm. were uh, prescribed to me based on, you know, science that the medical (laughs) practitioner was working on. Based on data. Data. Okay. So I think we've provided a lot of data and information this show, both Mm -hmm. um, generally about foods off of uh, quote unquote paleo protocol that could still be um, beneficial as well as corn in particular if you have follow-up questions i want to remind our listeners that they can submit them and that all information and references are always included in our show notes but the good stuff the real good good as we say in my house um (laughs) you can hear the real real on what we thought about the show in our new um Gosh, we still don't have a name for it, but essentially our Patreon family gets special insight after each show. Sarah and I record what we really thought in a um, not PG rated, fully disclosed tell all. um, And we combine those each month for one show for you to listen to um, over for our Patreon fam. So I hope that you'll take the time if you want to know more about what i really think. <laughs> um and um all that kind of stuff over on Patreon, you can find the link in the show notes as well. And as of this show, we've got our second episode coming out. So if you did not yet listen to the first, you're good, you got two to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um or if you already enjoyed the first and are ready for your next one, get excited. Well, thanks for listening.
1: And um, for anybody who is interested in uh, really digging deep into gut microbiome and how that interacts with health, um, the Gut Health Guidebook is easy to find on my website. So if you just go to my website and look under books, it's right there. And uh, you can still pre-order the Gut Health Cookbook, but it's coming out in a couple of weeks. And it has 183 recipes, um, that are all featured on a uh, six, one of 61 gut health superfoods. Um, and then each gut health superfood includes a couple pages of science of like what makes that food good for gut health. So it gets to be like a cookbook as well as an expansion of the gut health guidebook all in one. So, um, if you think gut microbiome is super cool, like I do, Uh, It's a great resource and you can go find that at thepaleomom.com.
0: Or if you are just totally cool with science, but you don't want to get super involved, this sounds like a great resource, not just to learn, but also for preparations that optimize these things. Like I'm Mm -hmm. going to make, I'm going to make an assumption. Are you ready? That mushrooms are cooked in olive oil in that, in that gut health book. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the games are sprouted. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. like if I think it for me, it makes it a no brainer, right? Like I don't have to think through all the different things that we've talked about as it relates to, you know, gut health and the different facets of that. I love Sarah. What I love the most about your science, and this is completely random and unplanned, but is that it becomes approachable in practice. And that's what I think you're super good at and what sets you apart and why I am fawning all over you right now is because you can, you know, you can take... All of this complicated stuff that we have forty-seven pages of notes on, and then be like, you know what? Just eat this. <laughs> like, <laughs> just here's just, here's your solution. Just just eat this. Yep. So I love the idea of being able to kind of like choose that and know. Okay, like yesterday was Cole's birthday, and we had, you know, we we made less than optimal food choices because we were celebrating. And today I'm like, I just need a giant salad. Like it was all I could think about <laughs> last night. It was like, what salad am I going to make tomorrow? Um, And being able to turn to a resource like that and like, just show me the best, the best food to recover from yesterday. Um, Anyway, um, thank you. I think you said you could pre-order that. I, again, this is like mm-hmm. completely unplanned. I'm like, I don't even know. Is that available? Is it pre-order? <laughs> It's, it's pre-order, but it's, it's coming out in a few weeks. And the, the
1: benefit of pre-ordering is everyone who pre-orders will get early access. Um, so if you're interested in the, the combo, again, you can find that, um, under the books or shop in, in the top menu of the paleomom.com, um, um, and if you want to just wait for the cookbook, I'm sh- sure Stacy will remind me to say something once it goes live
0: on the podcast. I'm really bad at remembering those things. I'll try. I'll do my best. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. We'll be back next week.
1: Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review
0: wherever you
1: listen and share a podcast with your friends and family.
0: And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode.
1: But not for kids ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as the whole view on Patreon for our real unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode.